Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden your American friend with the passion for British royal history. Last time we met, we talked about the various royal residences and the locations the royal family calls home. We talked about the difference between the crown estate and those that are under the charge of historic royal palaces, and of course, which residences can you tour and which ones are open to the public. It was sort of like an overview introduction to all the residences. and. As you've seen by the title, we're going to begin to explore more residences and why not start at the heart of it all, Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace is the center of the monarchy and is both a full working and private residence. It has been the heart of the House of Windsor since the reign of Queen Victoria and has been depicted many, many times on film and in television in such works as The Crown, Young Victoria, The King's Speech, the TV show titled Victoria, and the newfound hit Bridgerton. In pop culture, it's one of the things that some fans of the British royal family love to talk about are the fast facts of Buckingham Palace. Which flag means that the queen's in residence and which one means she's not? Did you know that it has a full ATM in the basement, that there's a full working post office, that it has this, that it has that? A lot about what the building has. But where did the building come from? How did Buckingham Palace get to be Buckingham Palace? Well, if you stick around, you'll learn exactly how Buckingham Palace got to where it is today. When we think of Buckingham Palace, we think of this large, imposing, strong facade with fabulous interiors that we all aspire to at least tour once in our lifetime. But it came from quite humble beginnings. All my information today comes from the 2011 edition of Buckingham Palace, the official illustrated history by John Martin Robinson. Not only does it have a quite thorough and comprehensive history of where Buckingham Palace came from and how it is today, but there's a lot of wonderful lithographs and prints and facsimiles of paintings and photographs of how the property evolved through time. So I would get a hold of any of the official illustrated histories of Buckingham Palace. They tend to reprint it quite frequently. Well, Buckingham Palace didn't start as a home of any sort. It began all the way back in the 17th century. Originally, the land where Buckingham Palace was on was a mulberry garden that was put in there by the uh, King James I. And this 
large swath of land also shared land with the Crown Estate, specifically St. James's Park. So it was both this private residence and a Crown Estate, and the private owner struck up a deal and there was a lease drawn up with the Crown Estate in order to share this land. But it was originally put there as a mulberry garden because King James I wanted to try to enter the silk world, and silkworms were put on the on the, the property. But it wasn't very successful at first. In fact, it I don't think it really ever took off. But in 1633, Lord Goring built a house on the property, and it was near the area of St. James's Park. And his house was called Goring House, and it was a cute little country house that had beautiful gardens, and it was a full private estate and Lord Goring actually leased it out. He leased Goring House out to quite a number of people. Most notably was the Earl of Arlington. He lived there for quite some time. However, in 1675, while the uh, Lord Arlington was leasing the house, Goring House caught on fire and burned to the ground. When it burned down, Lord Arlington contacted Lord Goring and bought the lease out and bought the land and bought the house. He bought everything, and in turn, he took on the lease that was a part of the Crown Estate. Now, in doing so, he cleaned up the land, cleaned up the area where the fire was, and built his own home, Arlington House. And those that visited Lord Arlington's house loved it. It was cute. It was awesome. It was bigger and slightly different than the original Goring House. However, in 1685, Lord Arlington died, and he, in his will and estate, passed the house and the property and everything onto his daughter. And her daughter was married, and they were the Duke and Duchess of Grafton. And so they took on Arlington House, they took on the lease, and they took on working with the Crown Estate. However, shortly after taking on the lease, the Duke died. He died prematurely from a wound he received from war. And of course, with primogeniture, the dukedom passed to their young son, who was only seven years old. While he was now the Duke of Grafton, he was still too young to fully understand what was going on. So a board of trustees was set up to help manage the estate, manage the land and everything else that uh, the new Duke of Grafton had. And one of the things that they did was they leased Arlington House out to other aristocrats. In 1698, the Earl of Mulgrave took over the lease. He moved in, he he was the current tenant, and in 1702, he bought out the lease. He bought the lease, bought the land, and of course, took over the lease with the Crown Estate. And in 1703, he was, he was then gifted and became the Duke of Buckingham. Now, when he acquired the estate, the Duke of Buckingham sought out to completely change it. He saw the potential of the land in the area, and he sought out to build his own home, which we know as Buckingham House. He sought out to make significant changes, to build a bigger, better, fancier home in all sense of it. There were lavish gardens, fountains, a large bowling green. The Duke took great pride and care in this estate, and it showed. Everybody that was there that could see it loved it. It was in the press and was known for being a beautiful, wonderful estate. But as I've said a few times, the land shared land with the Crown Estate in St. James's Park. Well, things were not all hunky-dory. In fact, in 
1761, there was a dispute about the lease between the Duke of Buckingham and the Crown Estate. And the Crown Estate won. They got the land and they got the house. And now Buckingham House has moved from being a private residence into a royal residence. It is owned by the Crown Estate. Now, King George III loved Buckingham House. He saw the potential for it, but in a different way. He wanted to keep it as a private sort of retreat away from it all. And this coincided wonderfully with his marriage to Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Streitzig. The new king and queen had planned to use Buckingham House as a nice retreat and a place away from St. James's Palace where all official court functions and royal business took place. And St. James's Palace had been the official residence and heart of the monarchy since King George I. Buckingham House offered this breath of fresh air and it was a nice escape from the rigid, stuffy, and at the time, a little antiquated St. James's Palace. Now, of course, as you would expect, the king and the royal household went in and updated the house, made it their own, and made it better fit for their new royal their new royal tenants. One thing to point out in all these renovations and updates was apparently the library at Buckingham House was fantastic. It was something to be marveled. But that was that. They settled into the flow. Buckingham House was this retreat they could get away to, and all business took place at St. James's Palace. They fell into a good stride, and that was that. However, as the king got older and his health began to decline, the wires began to cross and things started to get to be a little messy. So as we enter into the 19th century now, the king's health was getting worse. George III was nowhere fit to be king anymore, but he wasn't dead. So in 1811, Parliament enacted the Regency Act and the Prince of Wales became the Prince Regent. In this transition, Queen Charlotte ended up spending more and more time at Buckingham House, and more of her business was being enacted out of there. So the royal household allotted more money to her and her household in order to make up for upkeep and renovations to have this residence fit the new functions that it was having. But no major updates had been seen since it was first acquired by the royal family in 1761. However, things began to turn. In 1818, Queen Charlotte died, and Buckingham House was closed up and sealed for a little while. But it would not be the the last time it would be sealed up. The new King George IV saw potential in Buckingham House well before he actually assumed the throne. The new king had fallen in love with it and saw potential to make it the wonderful residence that it could be. That when we talk about George IV, we have to mention Carlton House at least. Now, Carlton House doesn't exist anymore. And it was the heart of the Regency. It was this splendid house, wonderful, ostentatious interiors. And it was a product of its time, but it was too small for George IV. He wanted something bigger and to really make his mark. And where could he do that? Buckingham House and the property. Now, the other side to the coin, yes, he loved fabulous things and he wanted to enact this big project, but George IV had a lot of debt, especially when he was a, when he was a prince. He acquired a lot of debt, so the government was very hesitant about moving forward with any 
updates, renovations, any big projects that were a lot of spending, the government was very hesitant about. Now, shortly after the Queen's death in 1818, the, um, George IV began making plans and coming up with ideas. And he went to the prime minister with his vision and said, this is basically, this is what I want to do. Here's my idea. I think it'd be great. And the the government was very hesitant and didn't want to go into it unless they had some form of control, unless they had some oversight, unless they could dictate the budget and keep it in control, then they weren't going to sign off on it. In fact, in these discussions, they even threatened to sell St. James's Palace if he were to go forward with it because he had a reputation for spending a lot of money. Now, George IV let things lie. He didn't bring it up again for a short while. He wanted to see what he could do. And he brought it up again in 1819. He went again to the prime minister, went to the government, said, I want to do this with Buckingham House. This is what I want to do. I think it'd be great. They had let up on it. They said, okay, we'll let you do it. Here's some funds we can allot. And the king said, no, this is too small. This is too small. I need more money. And the matter then laid quiet for a few years. Now, while it was laying quiet for a few years, that doesn't mean there wasn't any planning. In fact, there was a lot of planning. Now, in 1821, George IV instructed the Office of Works to get in contact with John Nash. So John Nash was an architect who had previously worked with George IV when he was Prince of Wales on Carlton House. Carlton House was this product of John Nash and his other friends and associates. And the king liked his work. So they contacted John Nash, said they were going to move forward on Buckingham House. We need ideas. We need plans. And plans were drawn up. Now, in essence, it was a complete overhaul of the estate, and it was as if a new building was being built. While the same shape of the estate was going to be kept, at the time, you know, the front facade still wasn't there, so this general shape was going to be kept, but it was going to be bigger, encased in stone, grander, everything else that you could think of that a king would want to call his home. Now, by 1825, the size of everything and plans and going forward of it. The size of everything rose considerably, the price rose considerably, and Carlton House actually was sold and demolished in order to help cover these costs. Following all this massive renovation, as in the early 1820s, in this, in essence, rebuilding of Buckingham House, it was hence renamed Buckingham Palace, and it was now becoming fit for where a king could reside. It was this pinnacle of work done by John Nash in work with George IV. George IV intervened a lot. He changed his mind. John Nash kept changing things and plans were changing and evolving all the while. And this came at a, at a very large cost. So with all this intervening and changing and updating of things, by 1829, the cost of everything rose to over 400,000 pounds. According to the Bank of England.co.uk, this converts to almost 45 million pounds. So this was a huge project that had gone well over any perceived budget. And the Duke of Wellington was angry. He was pissed. And sadly, King George IV died in 1830. And what work that needed to be done on Buckingham Palace was 
paused. The Duke of Wellington with Parliament and everybody launched a whole investigation into John Nash as to why there was such a mismanagement of funds. Why did the price elevate to be this much so quickly. Now, while most of the palace was completed, there were still sections that were incomplete. And at the time of George IV's death, the palace wasn't complete. But those areas that were completed were this beautiful masterpiece of John Nash and George IV working together on this pa- on this beautiful palace. Now, most of the staterooms that we know, some of these we can still publicly tour today, uh, Rooms like the throne room, the blue drawing room, the main center stairwell, and the entrance areas. Those are some that are still done by John Nash that we can still see to this day. Now things keep getting weird with the history of Buckingham Palace. So when while Buckingham Palace was this beautiful masterpiece of John Nash's work, it was left unfinished and there was a new king you know, uh, William the Fourth, and he didn't really like Buckingham Palace. He had a completely different taste level than that of his predecessor, and he really didn't like it. In fact, he was older. He wanted to just stay at Clarence House and do business there. He didn't like the idea of Buckingham Palace. He even tossed around the idea of just turning it into barracks. He he didn't want anything to do with Buckingham Palace. But the government intervened, and at the recommendations of the powers that be, William IV signed off on the completion of Buckingham Palace, but there was new management, new architects, a new designer, everything. And since Nash had been disgraced, they knew that they didn't want him, they didn't need him. And instead, they brought in Edward Bloor. Edward Bloor was a new architect to come in to finish what John Nash started. And in doing so, it's kind of hard to figure out where Bloor ends and Nash begins. It was a seamless integration into what Nash had started. And now Buckingham Palace really resembles a lot of what we know today. It looked a lot like what we know today, but it still didn't have the front wing that closed off the quadrangle. It was still open and resembled still what the old Buckingham House looked like, the shape of it. But it was huge. Buckingham Palace was now massive. Of course, what we think of today. Most of the furnishings from most of the furnishings going to Buckingham Palace came from Carlton House or were complete new additions made or were already from the royal collection that had a new home. Now, William IV didn't particularly like it, even though he signed off on it at the recommendation of those with the powers that be. He still really didn't like it. He was older, and he just wanted to stay where he was, and he didn't really approve of Buckingham Palace under his reign. However, things changed, but for the better. Uh, Once Queen Victoria assumed the throne in 1837, she didn't share the same issues with Buckingham Palace as her uncle, uh, William IV. In fact, she quite liked it. She went there once before, fell in love with it, and after she assumed the throne, she was very quick to move in. And she really made it her home, and she saw the potential in it, and she made it her official residence in the heart of everything. She was young, uh, she loved music and entertaining and dancing, and she brought a new level of prestige and importance to Buckingham Palace. And even when she married Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Goethe, that solidified the fate of the palace. He loved it, both of them loved it, and it became their like love child. They really put a lot of work into it with making it their own and updating it and changing it. Some of it not for the better. Some of the things they didn't fix 
fix some structural issues with it, but the big contribution from Buck, uh, from Queen Victoria and Prince Albert to Buckingham Palace is the ballroom and the pipe organ and all the spaces around it. They put that in, and at the time of putting it in, it was the largest room in London. And of course, Queen Victoria had a large family. She actually had a lot of children, and they needed to expand the palace. And so she was the one who put in the east wing that closed off the quadrangle and built that front facade to Buckingham Palace. She's the one that did that. And now Buckingham Palace resembles what we now know of it. It looks like what we know today. And with her with her large family and entertaining in her early years of her reign, the various balls she had and successful stays with foreign um, leaders and other kings and queens, Buckingham Palace was thriving. It was the center of all society. It was the center of culture. It was the center of everything. But sadly, that Buckingham Palace has another turn that it's going to take. So Prince Albert died in 1861 and... This left Queen Victoria heartbroken, and she really never recovered from the loss of Prince Albert. But also, she left Buckingham Palace. She uh, closed it and didn't come back to it because it reminded her too much of Prince Albert. It was where their family grew up, where they had spent so much time. And in doing so, she just couldn't walk through there without thinking of Albert. And so she left. Uh, Now, official work still happened there. There were still functions that went on, but they were without Queen Queen Victoria. She didn't go back to the palace. She spent most of her time at other residences in Windsor Castle. She couldn't bring herself to go back. And it lay unused and and all but abandoned for over 40 years. It was sealed. No one knew what the fate of Buckingham Palace was. In documentaries that I've, in documentaries and books that I've read of this period, there was jokes between the public that they were going to put Buckingham Palace up for sale. But all is not lost. When Edward VII assumed the throne, he quickly came to Buckingham Palace and reopened it and launched a huge preservation, restoration, and overhaul to immediately repair the palace for official use again. He saw the importance of it as it was still considered the center of the monarchy. And he, with Queen Alexandra, did everything they could to put the importance and prestige and high standard back into Buckingham Palace. Artwork were repaired, structures and foundations were fixed, things were updated to put the palace into the 20th century. Now, that work doesn't stop there. When George V assumed the throne, him and Queen Mary mostly spearheaded by Queen Mary, did a lot to even further preserve. And in fact, a lot of the work that Queen Mary did to Buckingham Palace, you can still see today with um, with certain pieces of furniture and wallpaper and color schemes, really all products from her going the extra mile to be sure that Buckingham Palace is preserved. And then when it passed to George VI, it became a center during World War II. It was the heart of everything and the king and queen didn't leave. And during the Blitz, Buckingham Palace was bombed. It received some minor damage, but the big thing was the pa- the palace chapel was completely destroyed. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, even made a statement uh, at the time after the Blitz when Buckingham Palace was was bombed that she knows what everybody else feels like because her home had been hurt and badly damaged, and it really aided in helping to unify the country in this time of peril. 
And now today with our current queen, she, she's been there pretty much ever since the 1950s when she assumed the throne in 1952. A fun anecdote I've read in one of my books and I don't know how much water it holds, but apparently when the current queen and the Duke of Edinburgh moved into Buckingham Palace, apparently there were not a lot of restrooms in the public areas. So one of the things they did was update to add more restrooms to the, uh, the areas. Now we've reached modern era and Buckingham Palace is still the center of it all. Active in its functions, active in its use, it's a center for tourism, and it's the heart of everything. One of the first things everybody that I've read and talked to whenever they get to London, that's the first place they want to go, is the gates of Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace came from quite humble beginnings. In the 17th century, it started as just open land for a small country home that shared a lease with the Crown Estate to the 18th century, where a lease dispute brought it into the Crown Estate. And then in the 19th century, it finally became the palace that we know today. Parts of the original Buckingham House still exist, but they're in the deep recesses of the palace and they're not easily viewed from by the public. Many royals have passed through its halls and more royals will continue to do so as Buckingham Palace is in use. And there you have it, a very brief overview into how Buckingham Palace became Buckingham Palace. Quite possibly one of the most famous palaces in the world. Now, where are we going to go next? What royal residence are we going to look at next? Well, you'll have to tune in to next week to see where we go in all the royal residences. But thank you for tuning in if you made it this far. You can email me at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com to let me know how I'm doing. If there's any particular topics you would like me to cover or any recommendations to help make this podcast better, you can email me there. You can leave a nice review and rate the podcast wherever you are currently listening. You can find it on Anchor, Google Podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can also follow me on Twitter at fanatic underscore royal, where I post updates and try to interact and engage with you as best I can. In the coming weeks, we're going to continue to look through royal residences, and if any other news updates happens, I'll update you in another fun future episode. Thank you for listening, and as always, I'll see you in the next one.